Morning, church. Let's just pause for prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word now proclaimed, living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Do now the work that only you can do by the power of your spirit, we ask. We pray that you would humble our proud hearts, that you would encourage our timid hearts, that you would mend our broken hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, last Sunday I made a grave mistake. Last Sunday I articulated to the church that Mary and I were celebrating 23 years of wedded bliss. And then on the way home in the car, Pete said, you know, Dad, that Sam's celebrating his 23rd birthday next week. And Mary and I looked at ourselves, and I thought for a moment, either there was some serious moral failure in Auckland 24 years ago, or our maths was slightly askew. Is it it the unforgivable sin for for a husband to get, you know, his wedding anniversary number wrong? It is, is it, Anne? Yes. The one redeeming factor was that Mary and I both got it wrong, so... (laughs) But praise God for 24 years of wedded bliss. Well, it's great to be back in the Gospel of Luke, and Zeshan did a great job last Sunday of reorienting us back into the Gospel of Luke. We were in chapter 20 uh, last week, and he reminded us of two metaphors that Jesus uses of his church. I won't ask you to, re- to re- relay them to me. I'll tell you, they were the temple uh, that we are called the temple of God, and that we are also called to be tenants in the vineyard of God. And he reminded us that the response, of course, is temples and vineyards is to be growing in holiness and to be growing in fruitfulness. Now, these two metaphors set us up helpfully for chapter 21 and the text that Chris has just read to us. So if you haven't opened your Bibles already, please turn with me to Luke 21, and I'm reading from verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now, the context of these comments is the growing tension between the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and Jesus. And these leaders of Israel had been scheming, they had been plotting to trap Jesus. And if you remember last week, those of you who were here last week, the word that Jesus proclaimed was actually a word of judgment. And so these leaders were feeling very, very pressured, and they schemed to trap Jesus. In fact, in the preceding chapter, we learn that they were sending spies to trap Jesus. But meanwhile, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, are kind of blithely going along, somewhat naively. And in this little interchange, we see them wandering along, and they're looking up at the temple, and they're saying, wow, how spectacular, how beautiful this temple is. These gifts were offered to God. How remarkable they are. And Jesus Jesus kind of shatters their naivety. 
by announcing prophetically that the temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And they're going, how can that be? Now, around 30 years before this conversation was taking place, Herod the Great had begun an incredible refurbishment of the temple. And he took years and hundreds and thousands of slaves to build this temple back to, to something beyond our imagining. The stones that he crafted for this temple, the refurbishment of the temple, were massive. Some of them weighing over 100 tons. In fact, they estimate that the largest stone weighs over 500 tons. And so the disciples are looking at these stones and thinking, look at their security, look at their strength, look at their splendor, and Jesus says, not one of them is going to be left standing on another. It's going to be trashed. And the disciples respond with two questions. When will this happen, and what will be the sign? When is this destruction of the temple going to happen, and what will be the sign? Now, Jesus is quite happy to engage with their second question. And as this chapter unfolds, he articulates exactly the signs that you are to look for, that we are to look for before this impending doom that he announces. But the first question, when will this happen, he engages not with it. In fact, in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus explicitly says, The day nor the hour no one can know when he will return. Not even the angels, not even the Son himself will know the day or the hour of Jesus' return. So we need to have that echo in the back of our mind, and that in part is why Jesus does not answer the question of the disciples about when, but the signs he does. So he announces that this temple will be destroyed. And on the 4th of August, 70 AD, Roman legions marched into Jerusalem. Four years before that, 66 AD, the, the, the Jewish uh, people had got sick of the Roman oppression and the zealots had won over the hearts and the minds of the nation of Israel. They said, this Roman oppression is enough and we're going to revolt. And they did so in violence. And for four years, blood was being shed all over Israel. It was only going to end badly. And the Romans in 70 AD, the Caesar of the time, sent in his legions. And he squashed the rebellion with incredible violence. And he trashed Jerusalem. And indeed, the temple was destroyed. Utterly destroyed. And so Jesus articulation of 40 years earlier that we've heard this morning came to pass. Not one stone was left on it. The fulfillment of Jesus' words. But as we read on in this chapter, it becomes clear from this side of history that Jesus' scope in chapter 21 is much broader than just the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. His scope goes to the end of time. I wonder if you, like the disciples are interested, intrigued, perhaps even fascinated to know when the end will come. Well, listen to what Jesus has to say, reading from verse 8. He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So, 
Jesus warns us to watch out, not to be deceived. False messiahs are going to come. They're going to have false words saying, the time, the end is coming. Don't believe them. Watch out, he says. There's going to be wars. There's going to be uprising. Don't be afraid. This must happen. But the end is still to come, Jesus says. Now, the language and the phrasing that Jesus is using here is prophetic language. He's drawing on Isaiah, he's drawing on Jeremiah, he's drawing on Ezekiel, and significantly, he's drawing on the prophet Daniel. And the language at this point in this chapter is prophetic, announcing when the end will come. Now, the three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record this description of Jesus of the end times, but all three authors draw out different emphases of the end time. For Matthew, in chapter 24 and chapter 25, the emphasis is very much on the end of time. You remember the phrasing of the the sheep and the goats. It's very much the last judgment that Matthew focuses on. Mark gives a broad and shorter overview, but Luke here tends to focus in this earlier part of the chapter at least on the first century prophetic judgment that is to fall on Israel. But then he moves on to the end of time. In verse 10, he said, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. Nations rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, earthquakes, pestilence, famine. Wherever we look in the age of the earth and we could look right now and say these things are happening. Down through the ages, these things have been happening. This week, nations are rising against nations, earthquakes of great magnitude, pestilence, famine happening and applying at virtually every age. But before all this, Jesus goes on to say, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors on, my, on account of my name, and so you will bear testimony. And so Jesus is prophetically foreshadowing, specifically, I think, in the first 100 the first 100 years, and as Luke's second testament, the book of Acts goes on to say, we see the early disciples being arrested, being called into the synagogues, called before governors, and Jesus' promise to his disciples is that I will give you the words. Your adversaries will not overcome you. I will be with you, in other words. It's a word of encouragement to his disciples. He goes on to say, that it's not just going to be the governors. It's not just going to be the Jewish leaders. It's going to be your own family. Look at verse 16. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Such is the opposition that is coming, even from within your family, the spiritual forces are going to bring this opposition even within our own families. That he says in a word of encouragement, but not a hair on your head will perish. And then this key verse in verse 19, stand firm. 
Stand firm and you will win life. That's a word to us this morning, to stand firm. These first few verses, I believe, as I said, Jesus is emphasizing what happens and what takes place in the first probably three centuries of the history of the church. But now as the chapter unfolds, especially from verse 22 to verse 28, Jesus lifts his gaze, and he lifts his gaze to the end of time. Now, any description of the end of time, any discussion of the end time needs to take all of Scripture into account, and especially we need to take into account the book of Revelation, especially the last three to four chapters in the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John articulates in what is called apocalyptic language, very symbolic, he describes what is going to take place, what is going to unfold at the end of time. Specifically, in Revelation 26, we read these words. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now, this a thousand-year reign, the church has struggled to understand what is this a thousand-year reign and when is it going to take place, just like those first disciples When is this going to take place? And down through the ages, there's been different interpretations. In the first couple of centuries, when the church was persecuted and they were being oppressed by the Romans, there was a confidence and a prayer that Jesus would return in bodily form at that point and then the church would reign for a thousand years. It's called a premillennial understanding. And then as the church became more settled in the fourth century, Theologians such as Augustine took this passage in Revelation 20 to understand and they read it in symbolic language and they said Christ is reigning. He's reigning from heaven and the church is ruling. And that's described as an amillennial understanding. And then in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, with his confidence in the Holy Spirit to revive the church, believed that there would be a great outpouring of the Spirit within the church And the church would reign for a thousand years, and then Christ would return. And that's called a post-millennial understanding. It strikes me that these great theologians, all significant in their minds, all confident in their understanding of Scriptures, have been shaped as much by their context as by the reading of Word of God. So what is Jesus saying in chapter 21? What does Jesus say about the end of time in chapter 21. Chapter 21 is a mixture of both prophetic writing and apocalyptic writing. And as we move on to the end of the chapter, it becomes more apocalyptic. He's using language from the book of Daniel. In the first seven to verse 24, he's announcing God's judgment on Israel in those first centuries. Verse 25 and 28, he's talking about the days that will come at the end of time. And what is clear is that there will be great tribulation before Christ returns. Stand firm, Jesus says, verse 19. Stand firm and you will win life. Literally, stand firm by your endurance, you will gain your life. Stand firm in the midst of all that the world and the flesh and the devil 
is going to throw at you, stand firm, Jesus encourages his disciples. Stand firm and you will win life. The picture there is really, some of you might have seen the coast to coast, and you might have seen them running, those mad people, running up Goat Pass and down and through the rivers. But as they would go through the rivers, you would often see them linking hands because the current was so strong. They needed somebody else to walk with them through the rivers. Stand firm. It's, it's making sure that your ground is secure. You're not actually standing still, but you are heading towards the goal, and the goal is Christ. Stand firm, and you will win life. Verse 22, he goes on to say, For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days. These are the last days now Jesus is talking about. How dreadful it will be. They will fall by the sword. They will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then he goes into this wonderful language of what's going to happen at the end of time. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehension of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Drawing from the book of Daniel. And when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, stand up. Remember verse 19, he said, stand firm. Now he's saying, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, get your eyes off what's going on in the world. Get your eyes on off the temporal things that all that is crowding you and lift up your eyes, stand up because your redemption is drawing near, Jesus says. He told them a parable to explain it and then he goes on to say in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. Be careful, he warns them. Be careful about how you're living your life right now. Be careful that your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. The end is going to come, and it's going to come suddenly. Be careful, he says. For it will come on those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Stand firm, stand up, and stand before the Son of Man. This week I was listening to an interview with Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Church, New York, and Tim was recently, I think last year, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It's a bad cancer, it's a terminal diagnosis and Tim was reflecting on his own mortality and he was reflecting on the shift of focus that this terminal cancer has brought in his life. And he quoted from John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, and he said and he applied these words to himself. John Newton once said that his greatest challenge was the inordinate attachment to the things of time. His greatest challenge was the inordinate attachment to the things of time. In other words, he was consumed with the things of this world. 
consumed with things of a temporal nature, and that's where he found his heart was resting. Tim and his wife, Kathy, even confessed to saying that they had been trying to bring and make heaven on earth, that they were shaping their life around the temporal things. He confessed to a couple of things. He said how for Kathy it was beautiful places and she loved to go to England and that's where her heart was at rest and she would long to go to England and there she would find her peace. For Tim, he said, it was his ministry accomplishments. He would achieve this wonderful, amazing stuff in his church and that's where he would find significance and meaning and now they're faced with a terminal cancer and all of that matters nothing. All of it matters nothing. I was challenged as I heard that interview. You've heard me wax lyrically about my place out at Waihola where I go to Kingsview and I often talk about this spacious place and my heart finds rest there and I know that that is not my home. I know ultimately I can't find my rest at Kingsview or at English Ave or anywhere. That is not my home. Christ is my home. Where do you find your rest? Where do you find your peace? Where do you find your gaze going? Is it consumed with the matters of temporal things? Or as Jesus is saying this morning in this text and warning us to lift up your gaze, to focus your eyes on eternity, because that's where you find your rest. John Owen puts it this way, the Puritan writer, by beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passions and lusts. By these our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, confusion, but there, but where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace for to be spiritually minded is peace. Where do you find your heart goes? When the troubles come, when the difficulties come, when the uncertainties come, where do you find your mind and your heart is finding its rest? Lift your eyes to Christ, to the glory of Christ. If there's one thing that I am certain about, more certain than anything, one thing that I can communicate to you this morning from this text, it is that Christ will return. Christ will return. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will endure for eternity, and he tells us that he will return. And when he returns, he reminds us he will judge the living and the dead. He calls us to stand before him, to stand before him on that day. We don't get a choice in that. We will stand before him and we will give an account for our life. And whether you stand before him with a confidence and a joy and an excitement about being ushered into the glory of an eternal relationship with God forever, or whether you stand there with dread and fear of an eternal separation from God depends on how you live your life today, the choices you make today, whether you have finally and ultimately, as we have sung this morning, given it all to Jesus, 
whether you have finally and ultimately said, not my will be done, but yours be done. With a certainty, I tell you this morning that Christ will return and he will invite you and command you to stand before you. And listen to his words in verse 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Are you confident in your ability to stand before the Son of Man? Have you placed your trust in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has the great exchange taken in your life where your sin is laid down and Christ's righteousness is imparted to you by faith? Are you able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ? For some of you, maybe the anxieties of the world, maybe the pressures of your current existence, maybe the world and all that is going on in the world is bringing you anxious thoughts, uncertainty. And God would say to you this morning, stand firm, stand firm. As the currents of the world, as the currents of your flesh, as the currents of this world and the currents of your flesh are sweeping over your life, Jesus would say to you, stand firm. Fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, stand firm. And he is with you, and he will get you through this. But to all of us this morning, God would say, the third stand, he would say, stand up, Hope Church. Stand up, because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, lift your gaze from the temporal. Lift your gaze from the worries of this life. Lift your gaze from all that's going on, all the mess that's going on. Stand up, your redemption is drawing near. By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest for our souls. Do you know that rest today? Do you know that rest in your heart? Jesus would speak a word of encouragement and a word of warning this morning from chapter 21 in Luke's gospel. May this word settle on our hearts as we stand firm. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, we began this morning asking that you would humble our proud hearts, that you would strengthen our timid hearts, and that you would mend our broken hearts. We acknowledge that none of this can happen apart from your grace, apart from the indwelling work of your Holy Spirit. And I pray now that you would take the truth of your word spoken 2,000 years ago and you would impart life into your church this morning. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this, your word, will never pass away. This, your word, is living and active. So do the surgery that's required in our hearts. Do the surgery that's required in our minds to get our thinking straight, aligned with your words. Do the surgery in our very spirits that your life might dwell within us. Help us this morning, Lord. Help us this week, help us this season to stand firm, to stand up, that ultimately we might be, be able to stand before you with joy and confidence because of your grace upon our lives. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.